Alternative Radio. You know, for some people, making a great hazy IPA is like chasing a unicorn. But I think that it's a lot easier than a lot of people make it out to be. So I invited Brandon Caps of New Image Brewing on, and we're going to talk about his homebrewing days and how to make great hazy IPAs this week on Homebrewing DIY. Homebrewing DIY, the podcast that takes on the do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing. Gadgets, contraptions, and parts, the show covers it all. On this week's show, we're talking to Brandon Caps, founder and head brewer over at New Image Brewing. He's going to talk to us about making great hazy IPAs. We'll also talk a bit about his history and how he started a brewery at the ripe young age of 22. So it's a great, great conversation. So stick around for the interview. But first, I'd like to thank all of our patrons over at Patreon. It's because of you that this show can come to you week after week. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewing DIY. I... I say this every week, but I, I really do appreciate all of our patrons. And if you are a patron member, you got an early episode of this show. Probably not too early, like Wednesday instead of Thursday. And the coolest part, though, is that your episode doesn't have ads. I am going to start doing a bit of a change to my Patreon levels. I I was doing that you had to give it the $3 level to get to the ad-free episodes. I'm actually going to drop that down for a limited time to the $1 level. So if you give it the $1 level, that's a dollar a month. I mean, a cup of coffee and a really, really inexpensive cup of gas station coffee. You're going to be able to get ad-free episodes of Homebrewing DIY. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewing DIY. Another way to support the show is by using coffee, and that's ko-fi.com forward slash homebrewing DIY. Or coffee actually came out with a new feature where you can do one-time support directly from my website, homebrewingdiy.br. You'll just click on the coffee widget, and you don't even have to leave my website to contribute. So that's you know another URL to not have to learn, and that one-time support is also greatly appreciated. The last way to support the show is to head on over to our website, homebrewingdiy.beer, and there you can use our sponsor link. So if you're going to do some shopping at Adventures in Homebrewing, you're going to buy a brand new brew bag from thebrewbag.com. You can get that price just like you would any other day. If they have deals, you get the same deals. But the cool part is that they know we sent you, and then they in turn support the show. I found out just this week that uh, Milwaukee, who is on my Discord server, has been using that link, and he let me know because I, I said, hey, I see people using it, and he let me know that, hey, I, it was him. And I just thank you f so much for your support. It, it really 
really helps keep the show on the air. Like, like I say, I, this isn't my job. I have a day job. I sell restaurant technology for my day job. And it's something where you have the ability to support a, a show that really is a, a passion of mine to make. I love reaching out to professional brewers, home brewers, and all of the people that we talk to. And your support just makes all of this possible. It pays for things like my website hosting. It pays for things like the equipment to make this podcast, the service I use to do my remote interviews. I don't actually use Zoom like everybody else in the world. So all of those things add up and your support helps us keep the lights on. So thank you so much for your support. I guess it's time to jump into the interview this week. I'm very, very excited. We're going to talk to Brandon Caps of New Image Brewing. I'd like to welcome Brandon Caps. He's the founder and head brewer of New Image Brewing here in Arvada, Colorado. One of my favorite breweries. And uh, Brandon, welcome to Homebrewing DIY. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. You have a very unique origin story when it comes to how you got into craft beer and really how you ended up founding a brewery. Uh, let's start there. Let's let's talk about your background a bit. Yeah. So um, I'll just kind of start with how I got into beer to begin with. Uh, so I was an electrical engineering uh, major at Georgia Tech, and I was in my second year and looking for co-op positions. It was kind of a part of a degree program, sort of like a super internship where you do uh, three years of on and off rotations with one company and working as a full-time employee, as opposed to just, you know, picking up some summer hours or whatever. And I was looking around at different options and um, one of the options that uh, kind of popped up was funny. Actually, I wasn't even looking for it, but a friend was like, yo, check this out. Like Budweiser's hiring uh, for co-ops that'd be pretty neat. And I was like, Oh yeah, that, that would be pretty neat. And like, I was 18 at the time. So, um, I was 18 and a, and a huge prude. Um, I didn't party. I didn't drink. Like I was there for school working my ass off. And, um, but the position was intriguing to me one, because yeah, it sounded cool. And two, uh, it specifically was like more managerially oriented. And I kind of always had this sense that I wanted to, run something, whether it was somebody else's company or my own company. Um, I wanted to start learning the skills of managing people and, and so on and so forth. So I interviewed there, uh, ended up getting a job there and, um, I actually hated it at first. Uh, I was in the packaging side, um, in the maintenance area and working under a really cool guy who was actually a great mentor. Um, but I just didn't really it was a huge culture shock for me at, at 18 growing up in a pretty like religious Southern community to be exposed to these like really kind of rough, uh, you know, mechanics that worked on these packaging lines all the time. And they sort of traumatized me almost instantly. Um, and it was just, you know, the packaging side was just very fast paced, just constant problems, constant headaches. Um, and, so that actually, that semester that I worked full-time there went really badly and they decided to like, rather than terminating my co-op, um, move me over brewing and see if that was maybe a better fit. 
And they moved me over to brewing and I started working under the brewmaster, Dan Kahn. He actually may have heard of Dan. He was running Sierra Nevada's um, R&D for like the last maybe five or six years prior to deciding that he wanted to be a master distiller now. So now he's working for, um, I actually forget which group he's working for now, but um, really brilliant dude. You know, one of the, one of the last kind of true Anheuser-Busch brewmasters with a, you know, 25 year tenure and just, I mean, the guy could line up Bud Lights and tell you which American Budweiser brewery they came from. And it just an incredible palate um, insane wealth of knowledge. And I really gravitated to him a ton. And, um, I still wasn't really into beer. I still wasn't really drinking. I was very much there for like the management and the engineering. And, um, he encouraged me like, Hey, you know, I think you'd be a lot better at designing these systems and troubleshooting these systems. If you understood the process more, why don't you try homebrewing? Um, and so I did, I bought a, I went on northernbrewer.com and bought a, uh, all grain whites, Weizenbach kit, um, and spent like 500 bucks on, you know, the kettle and just everything. I'm, I'm kind of one of those weird, like zero to 60 type of people in general. Um, <laughs> you know, so my, my first batch was an all grain Weizenbach, um, and we, I brewed that with my dad and we kegged it also weird for a first time home brewer. Um, and we actually brought it out here to summit County. Um, I was living in Georgia. I grew up in Georgia, uh, brewed this at my parents' house in Georgia. And then we drove it out with our pop-up camper, came out here for climbing and fly fishing, uh, pretty much every summer when I was a teenager and in college. And so we dragged this keg of Weizenbach out here and cracked it open and drank it. And I mean, this was probably like my third beer, you know, I'd, I'd had like a couple of, you know, light beers at a frat party my freshman year. I'd probably had a beer with my dad. Um, but this was a solid, like third or fourth drink of my life was this fights and Bach that I homebrewed and, uh, we drank it and I was just like, Whoa, this is dope. This is super cool. Um, and I was also 19 drinking at altitude and drinking fights in box. So we were just hammered the whole friggin' trip. Um, but it was a blast. And, um, it, it was sort of this moment where I realized, you know, I'd been uh, a musician as a teenager, played in a lot of bands. I did a lot of, uh, physical media art when I was younger. Um, but for some torturous reason. I had an insanely practical mind. And someone told me when I was like 12 years old, they were like, don't be an artist, artist starve, be an engineer. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I found this and I was like, man, there's this like really technical side to this whole brewing thing. That's, that's really fascinating for someone who's into science and into reading dense literature. Um, but there's also this really cool artistic side. And there's a side of me that I've kind of been suppressing since I became practical and decided I wanted to be an engineer and get into a you know, top 10 school and all that shit. And so I gravitated to it because of that. And so I started, started homebrewing, started going down the list of, you know, the beer advocate top 100 at the time and whatever I could possibly find, which was not much in Metro Atlanta. Um, 
And again, I was still underage. I was, I was 19 when I really started homebrewing. And so I would like go into a total wine with my dad and pick out like 30 singles. And then I would just like bail and he would buy it. And then I would like have a beer a night for a month. And every single beer I had, I would like go through and do the full, like, you know, appearance, aroma, taste, mouthfeel overall. Um, I wasn't like a raider cause I've always kind of felt like that was, uh, not ideal. <laughs> um, but I would record for my own sake, um, just in some app I had on my phone at the time, my, my self reviews of beers, but more so just for like honing my own palate and, and learning how to taste things. Um, so I'd like every night my ritual was like get home from work, um, make something cool for dinner uh, after I usually go on a long run or whatever, and then, uh, sit down to the beer. And I mean, at that time, you know, I would take an hour and a half to drink like a 90 minute IPA, um, which is super appropriate. Actually, that was a totally unintentional comparison, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I would just, I'd sit there and just pick apart these beers and just drink so slowly and try to understand every little nuance and then do the same with my own beer. Um, and I just, it quickly exploded into this ridiculous hobby where I had, I think, 35 gallon, uh, bucket fermenters at my parents' house. Um, and then I had like five in my closet at college and I was just brewing like two to three times a week and just making so much beer. And like, fortunately, Anheuser-Busch paid really well. <laughs> so especially for someone who's 19 and in school, um, so I was just dumping a ton of money into homebrewing and realized really quickly that this was going to be something that I wanted to do professionally beyond just working for a giant brewery and understanding, you know, the, the brewing components a little bit better. Um, and so it's kind of funny when I had my exit interview at Anheuser-Busch, they asked me, so what's next? And, you know, it's a big corporate company. They, everything is quid pro quo there. So like they were expecting me to say like, Oh yeah, I'm going to join the global management trainee program or I'm going to try to apply for engineer one or something like that. And I was just like, I'm going to start a brewery. And they're like, really? They're like, yeah, totally. Like, you, you don't want to come work for the company. I was like, Oh no, no, I don't like to hear it all. I really, <laughs> I really don't want to be a part of this. Um, but thanks. Thanks for the memories. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was not super well received at the time. Um, and I actually had a exit exit interview, um, <laughs> where they discussed that, you know, there's certain expectations about what you say and what you don't. I'm just like, I'm, I'm not full of shit. I never have been. I don't. And this has actually gotten me in trouble with relationships too, where it's like, like, why don't you talk about this stuff in front of your mom? And they're like, oh, because I don't want them to know about that side of me. And I'm like, I, well, I, I'm not good at lying. So if they ask me about this, I'm, I'm just going to tell them the truth. You know, it's just, it's just my whole life. Like, that's always how I've been. I'm an open book. I don't really censor myself. I filter when it's appropriate, but I try not to be fake. So anyway, yeah. um, so yeah, I left that job. Um, I was wrapping up college and the first brewery that I ended up at was called Brew Gentleman Beer Company in, uh, Braddock, Pennsylvania. It's just outside of Pittsburgh. Um, those guys found me on Pro Brewer 
And uh, we started talking, and it felt like a good fit. They were also like a year older than me. Um, so it's three, you know, one 21-year-old and two 22-year-olds. Um, all the, They were just graduating Carnegie Mellon. I was just graduating Georgia Tech. And um, they were really adept at the marketing and branding side, um, but lacked the brewing knowledge. And so I kind of brought that component. So I came on there as like the third um, you know, partner and started that up. And uh, it was it was super fun. It was a crazy experience. I lived in this shanty. Uh, it was an old convent built in like the mid 1800s, and our rent was fifty dollars a month. And uh, it was it was quite bizarre. I mean, I was working like brewing for sixteen hours, and then working the tap room for like four to six hours, and then I just crash. Sometimes I just sleep on the malt, and then wake up and start brewing again. Um, but did you know stay there for about a year and kind of decided to part ways with those guys. But then that's when I came out here to start new image. Yeah. And, and you started new image, you were 22, 23. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, 2014 when I founded the company. So I would have been, I would have just turned 23 when I started new image. Wow. That, that's so crazy. Uh, I got to admit when I was 23, I was waiting tables and uh, bartending like at a, at a bar. And that was, uh, you know, the extent of my career at that point. And you're like founding a brewery. That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, I'm fully aware that I'm, I'm the weird one, um, in the <laughs> equation, but you know, at the time it was like, you know, I don't have anything to lose. Like I don't, I don't have a house. I don't have a high paying job. And I mean, I could literally try this for a decade and fail and I'll just be a 30 year old guy with an engineering degree and no money. So basically an average guy, and then I can just go from there. Um, so that was kind of the, the risk calculus at the time. It was like, even looking at the industry too, it seemed like the growth rate was still just exponential for breweries at the time. And so it felt like, you know, I've got a really good experience with the branding side. I mean, Bridgelman blew up pretty quick in Pittsburgh. And um, so I, I learned a lot from that experience and, uh, I think the craziest part was the, I'm going to go do this in Colorado thing. I mean, just jump into one of the most competitive brew scenes in uh, the country, not to mention a very expensive place, which I didn't really realize before moving here, um, just across the board. I, I was also kind of used to Atlanta, so I wasn't super shocked by how expensive things were when I first moved here. But in any case, yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting way to just jump into it but at the same time it made a ton of sense it's like when I, when am i going to have this little to risk um you know and if i don't do this now i'm probably going to be pretty successful as an engineer and it's, it might make it that much harder for me to ever take this risk so yeah yeah well i i would i would say now it's 2021 it's pretty apparent that you're probably going to brew for a while um so let's dive into some beer. I, one thing that, and, and just, I'll, I'll give you my experience with new image. I actually didn't move to Colorado until 2017. Uh, I actually work in restaurant technology and, uh, and my old company moved me out here and, uh, I 
bought a house in Arvada. And the first beer I actually bought when I moved to Arvada was a New Image East Coast Transplant, which was also one of the first hazy IPAs I actually have ever had. It was back in 2017. And so you... at that brewery, I think have really kind of set the standard for the style here in Colorado. And so let's talk about, you know, maybe your approach to that style and, and how you're really, uh, 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 I'm going to say juicing up the hops, but that's not really the right term, but really just kind of getting a really consistent product from really something that has a, I mean, at any given time, you have multiple different uh, hop combinations of beers on tap, but, but I would say that they're all consistently well done. What is your approach in, into a hazy IPA to kind of get that consistency? Yeah. Um, I'll briefly touch on sort of how I came to brew hazy IPAs in the first place. Um, it really wasn't, uh, it wasn't a thing yet when we started doing it. Um, we weren't the first by any means. I mean, Alchemist has been doing it for several years. Hill Farms have been doing it for several years. Uh, but what's funny is I didn't really have like, I had like a Facebook, but I didn't really use social media, um, back then. So I wasn't super aware of like what was going on elsewhere. Um, so I, I really stumbled upon making a hazy IPA super organically. And the thought process was I'd never as a home brewer used an American yeast strain once. I just thought... Why would I like the main descriptors for this in a positive light are clean and, you know, non-contributing, like they make alcohol and that's it. And I was like, well, that's boring. Like that lacks any nuance. So English strains, like they have this kind of like messy, fun ester profile that, that complicates things. Like, why wouldn't I want that in my IPAs? Cause you know, like hops are great, but like, we could layer this, tie it together, make a more cohesive overall thing. And so I had just always been brewing with English yeasts and was playing with a bunch of different English yeasts to brew gentlemen and stumbled upon brewing a handful of batches. I think with like British Ale 2 was like the first one we started kind of making these IPAs with and nowhere near as, you know, opaque as kind of the stuff we're doing now, but really going more heavy on late kettle additions, really going more heavy on dry hopping, just trying to be as aroma focused as possible. And then just tying together, like, all right, we want to close this gap between the malt and the hops and make this more cohesive picture. And thus kind of our version of hazy IPA there was born when in between the transition of leaving Brugel and starting new image and that inevitable uh, period of time between the two, I was, you know, back to homebrewing a lot and, um, and trying to really develop, you know, really to develop East Coast Transplant. That was, uh, one of the first beers that I really knew we were going to make. Um, weirdly decided I wanted to have a double IPA as the only IPA we served in our flagship. Um, I think that was heavily influenced by, uh, the Alchemist and Hetty Topper, um, so yeah, I was, I was developing that beer, and um, so a couple of the things about my approach initially were uh, I I was always using uh, extract for the bittering and first word additions. Um, you know, at the homebrew level, it was the like hop shot products, and then commercially 
Uh, Yakima Chief Hops is our main supplier. They make supercritical CO2 extracts. So I was using that for bittering. Um, but I also noticed that they, like, they have a pretty impactful uh, flavor and aroma contribution. Um, we were using, I was using Conan uh, for the first several years at New Image. I really, really liked that strain early on. Um, and I liked it a lot. I think I liked it more as a home brewer. Um, because I didn't notice the inconsistencies that I would notice once I started packaging beer and, and trying to like really think about shelf life. Um, so for home brewers, I think Conan is a, is a great strain for commercial brewers. Um, I mean, it's not just tricky. It, it really is a very difficult beer or yeast to use as a, as a, as a workhorse flagship yeast. It's kind of inconsistent um, sort of a diastole palm. Uh, so we sort of drifted away from that in the long term. but, you know, one of the first and foremost things about, you know, making consistent and especially stable hazy IPA was figuring out, well, we're trying to have some level of turbidity, although admittedly, especially early on, turbidity was a byproduct, not a goal. Um, in fact, I think the first time we brewed an IPA that was hazy the way we make them now is like shit <laughs> this doesn't look right no one's gonna buy this <laughs> throw some biofine in there and the biofine didn't work and i was like well we're too poor not to serve this so let's serve it anyway and see what happens and uh and it was it and it did really well and they're like well but maybe there's something here but then it's funny because like by the time we were doing east coast transplant out here it was a new challenge which was uh i mean Initially, it was trying to get people to drink the damn thing in the first place. I was getting laughed out of bars uh, left and right by buyers. They were just like, you fucking lazy-ass home brewer. You don't know what you're doing. Like, go back to home brewing. Get the fuck out of this industry. Just, like, it, when you can make a proper West Coast IPA that's crystal clear, come, you might consider walking across our threshold again. And, uh, <laughs> you know, five years later, they couldn't have been more wrong. Not that it's... Not that it's really influenced their memory at all, because for some reason they still like remember us as like, oh, new image. Like, I had a bad experience with them early on. It's like you had the experience of being completely fucking wrong about the next huge phase for IPA, but whatever. Um, <laughs> so you know, one of the big challenges though was like, how do we get these things to not like not snow globe, not oxidize? Um, you know, it's a lower, lower carbonation product. So especially when we started canning more susceptible to oxygen pickup, um, especially in like a non counter pressure filler situation, which is what most breweries our size, um, are kind of working with, especially at the time. And so I, for people who are home brewing and want to make a, a consistent hazy IPA and a stable hazy IPA, the first and foremost thing before you mess with any of your ingredients, before you mess with any of your methods, um, just oxygen, just oxygen post-fermentation, anything and everything that you can do to prevent oxygen from entering your beer is going to be the number one difference. Maybe the only other thing, and I kind of forget about this, but as a disclaimer, clean, clean stuff well, like 
clean stuff. It's amazing to me when I was first getting into homebrewing, how many of you were like, oh yeah, just give stuff a quick rinse and then like throw some star sand in there and call it a day. I was like, no, that doesn't cut it. Like if you're going to do anything, I think I remember like listening to the brewing network back in the day and they were like, really, if you're going to do anything, just clean the PW and rinse and don't use Sandy, you're better off that way than the reverse. Um, You can't sanitize something that's not clean, so... People forget that beer is food. I know that we all drink it and put it in our bodies, but I think that a lot of homebrewers, when they think about cleanliness and and especially newer homebrewers, you got to think of it as it is a food product. And if you were in a restaurant or if you were cooking or if you were doing something like that and it wasn't a, a, a clean and, and, and sanitary product that you were going to use to even cook food in, it's not even good enough for beer, right? So that's just... What one of my thoughts on cleanliness when I try to explain it to people. Totally. Well, you know, and I, I know that I, even five, six years ago, when I was listening to a lot of homebrewing podcasts, I heard this reiterated over and over again. Um, but I still think that it's one of the most important points that was ever made, which is, um, I remember when I was first getting homebrewing and I was writing all these super complex recipes, especially with grain bills, just trying to find every little unique grain that could possibly make my beer taste a little bit better and every unique hop that could make my beer taste a little bit better. It's very ingredient focused. And I just heard it over and over again. It was like, you can make a phenomenal stout with base malt, black malt, and crystal malt. You can make a phenomenal IPA with Centennial and Pilsner. Um, the difference is your methods. You know, are you good at cleaning? Are you good at managing oxygen post-fermentation and just doing every single step meticulously? And I can tell you from looking at the really good professional brewers versus the ones who, you know, just make barely make the cut. The biggest difference isn't the ingredients. It's not the brand of hops that we're buying. It's, it's technique and method and, you know, in some cases, technology, sure, once you have a certain amount of money behind your operation. But even if you don't have a ton of money, like if you put in the time and you're very meticulous and you really focus on, you know, just even even cleaning your fermenters super well, like it's same at the commercial level as is on the small scale. Like, and it's something that I reiterate to my seller team constantly. It's like, you understand how small the mistakes you can make are that can fuck up something huge. You know, it takes a milliliter of oxygen to ruin a 2000 gallon batch. And when you like give people that perspective, like it's very small mistakes that have huge impacts. And so you have to do everything in brewing with this mindset of really, really overly cautious care to every detail to make sure um, you don't ruin something because it happens instantly. I mean, we had a batch of Coriolis effect, 60 barrel batch, um, so thousand gallons of beer that was all the way into the bright tank. It's about ready to get packaged. Um, but our main CO2 tank, uh, kicked that day. And so we switched over to the backup CO2 tank and we came back the next morning and measured the dissolved oxygen prior to packaging. And it was through the roof. It was way high. I mean, we rarely see a beer in the tank above like five parts per billion. And it was sitting at like 250. 
um, which is just horrible, absolutely awful. And I was racking my brain, like, what the hell happened? I mean, like, I just measured this yesterday, and I'm the one that, you know, carbonated it. I didn't do anything that I can think of. And I realized that whenever the backup CO2 tank got connected to the main jumper line, that we didn't do a pre-purge um, from the coupling. And so when we switched over to that backup CO2 tank, the amount of oxygen that was just between the coupler on the CO2 tank and the receiver uh, went all the way through our system and through the carbon and dissolved perfectly into the beer and ruined the batch. You know, we dumped it. Um, and, you know, which is like, it happens from time to time. People get really bent out of shape about dumping beer, but like it's part of it, you know, like if you're a <laughs> painter, sometimes you just like, you knock over your canvas and you spill paint on it. You're like, ah, shit. Well, <laughs> new canvas, you know, um, it happens, but yep. just to put it in perspective, like when you're home brewing, your margin of error is even smaller because you're dealing with five gallons. So you do the math on what one part per billion of five gallons is. And, and your margin of error is 10 of those. It's, it's tiny, you know, it's probably a thousandth of a milliliter of oxygen that's capable of ruining a batch of beer. And I reiterate this point over and over again, because I think that, again, people are like, is it the hops I'm using? Is it the malt I'm using? Is it the yeast? Is it, is it this? Is it that? It's probably oxygen. It's probably oxygen, or it's probably an unclean fermenter most of the time. Once you get past those things, um, then you can start talking about some more intricate stuff. And, and because I know homebrewers and really any beer enthusiast like really want to hear not so much of what I just talked about, a little bit more of the other stuff. <laughs> I'll tease a couple of those things. So um, I personally really like uh, full-spectrum extracts on the hot side. I think they make some really unique beers that stand out, have a more pungent hot side character uh, than, than what you can get with just regular hops. Um, I really, I definitely have, um, I've gone full fully across the spectrum of, you know, dry hopping friggin' two times, three times, four times, five times, um, you know, knocking out onto the first dry hop, just all these different methods. And honestly, the best way to dry hop for hazy IPAs is to, and actually for pretty much all IPAs is cool the beer down a little bit. Um, not like cold crash, but like, you know, high fifties, mid fifties and, okay. um, let the yeast drop out for a couple days so you can get the cell count down um, and you know, if maybe if I was homebrewing, I might even consider racking to a separate fermenter after some initial cooling. Um, and then dry hop once the yeast has been mostly removed from the solution and just do one dry hop, especially, especially as a, as a home brewer, you're not going to deal with stratification and, you know, the kind of issues that we deal with at the commercial level to the same degree, um, you don't need to dry hop 15 times. Um, yeah. and you know, like biotransformation is like a big buzzword that a lot of people have talked about in my experience. Like it is interesting. I would say if you're interested in biotransformation, see if you can get your hands on a hop extract that's terpene driven and try dosing with that. Because when you have vegetal matter going in during fermentation, 
more than what you get from the biotransformation of the hop oils, you're going to get in polyphenol extraction. And that's just going to make your beer taste super, you know, people say green, people say hot, people say, oh, IPA tastes young. Um, is where the whole conversation about like, why do some people's IPAs need three weeks in the can before they taste drinkable and others don't? Most of that's polyphenols. And polyphenols increase in extraction with temperature, time, etc. So um, I would, if I was, I haven't homebrewed in a long time. If I was to make an IPA as a homebrewer, hazy IPA, I would probably do, I don't know how this translates to, you know, ounces per gallon. So somebody else could do that math. Um, but, you know, do a pound <laughs> somebody and a half. Somebody will send to, me an email. Somebody yeah, will send me an email with it. <laughs> for sure. Do, do a pound and a half to, uh, to two pounds per barrel on the hot side. Um, you know, and feel free to mess around, do whatever you want. It's homebrewing, have fun. Um, but for, for us, a pound and a half, two pounds per barrel of hops on the hot side. Um, give them about 15 minute, uh, hot stand. I personally like to use hop, hop extracts on the hot side. Um, rack that over, ferment it out. We use London three. It's our house strain. It's kind of everybody's house strain. Um, and let it completely ferment. I mean, just hit your, hit your numbers. And, and I would honestly say too, like hit your numbers before you dry hop. Um, if you have under attenuation issues, like work on that too. Um, cause under attenuated IPAs just across the board, doesn't matter if it's West coast or hazy, even though hazies tend to be sweeter and higher final gravity, hit your numbers. Um, and then cool it down a little bit or, you know, give it some time too. like yeast will also just prop out with time. Um, and then do one dry hop and do it for 24 hours. Um, honestly, as a home brewer, I would say even too, you could just cold crash to 30, 32 degrees, put it in a keg, dry hop in a keg for 24 hours, um, and then, or even overnight, like 12, and then rack into your finishing vessel. Um, a lot of studies, especially at that scale, um, have shown that you reach saturation uh, for dry hopping in about four hours in a five gallon solution. And once you hit about 24, um, you're actually starting to see those compounds that you're working really hard with all your dry hopping to get into solution start to precipitate out of solution. Um, they saturate really fast and they fall out, um, not nearly as fast, but at kind of an inverse exponential rate. Um, the, the compounds that make hops aromatic are super hydrophobic, um, and beer is super hydrous. <laughs> so... Uh, you kind of want to take what you can get out of the solution quickly and then just capture that and hang on to it. Um, so whether you're kegging or bottling, you know, personally, I, I used corny kegs a lot as a home brewer. Um, I think that it's a great way to do hazy IPs, especially because you have a you know vessel that you can purge and that you can do positive pressure during racking and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, use, use CO2, use pressure for your racking, try to, try to purge things. Like we always have a positive pressure purge going during dry hops, positive pressure during anything, you know, always have CO2 pushing out of whatever vessel you're dealing with post fermentation, um, so that you're limiting oxygen intake, but keep your dry hops short. Um, that's a big thing in terms of when we talk about like you know, juicy character, um, other than like the hops you might choose for that, I think a big part of that is extracting oils and not extracting a shit ton of acid and polyphenol. So, um, 
you know, to put that in non-technical terms, uh, reduce your temperature, reduce your time, uh, you're going to get more of what you want in a hazy IPA that way, um, regardless of the hops you're using. And then in terms of ingredient selection, um, don't be too overly complicated. And I'd say this across the board too, especially with home brewing, because, you know, when you've got a, a huge 40,000 BTU flame burning on a, um, little tiny five gallon pot, you've got so much more, you know, melanoidin develop development, um, and million reaction character that's going to be in that beer. You don't really need to have an overly complex malt profile. So don't feel the need to go crazy on crystal malts and, um, adding melanoidin malts and stuff like that at that scale. Like really like, I think a, a decent two row, I used a lot of golden promise when I was home brewing, um, some oats, always fun. Uh, I personally really like white wheat. Uh, I, you know, but I, I don't, most of our hazy IPAs are, you know, three ingredients, base malt, wheat malt, oats, or base malt, wheat malt, and flaked wheat. Um, and then I personally don't like to use usually more than three hops and rarely more than two. Um, but also rarely one. I personally don't love single hop beers all that much. Certain hops like Nelson work great. Um, but most just don't have the complexity to stand up that well. Um, but, you know, focus on, I would especially say two. do a lot of two hot beers and really get to know, you know, some quintessential pairings that you can come up with there, which ones complement each other, which ones don't really jive. Um, the less parameters you're trying to tweak at a time, the more you're going to learn about each individual parameter. And, um, and then also water profiles. I, I've we've geared towards a really hard water profile, you know, two to 300 parts per million, um, of most of the, the big hitters in terms of calcium sulfate chloride. Um, and then, so, you know, so you're not doing the, I always hear the two to one chloride to Cal, uh, the, like basically calcium, more chloride than, uh, sulfate is, is what, I hear a lot when it comes to water profile and, and you're saying you kind of juice them all up. Is that, is that what you're saying? So they all end up being pretty high and we still, I would say sit anywhere from, I mean, sometimes it's, you know, like a you know, hundred to one ratio of chloride to sulfate. Um, and sometimes it's two to one. Sometimes it's, you know, one and a half, 1.25 to one. Um, but I think something that I would say has been more consistent uh, and I forget when I read someone talking about this years ago, um, but it's actually that having an overall higher concentration um, has more of an impact than ratios, which is sort of counter to a lot of the preaching that was going on, you know, maybe five years ago and, and maybe even still. Um, if your chloride to sulfate ratio is 50 parts per million to 25, um, I don't think that's going to have as big of an impact as if you had 250 parts per million of chloride and 200, uh, parts per million of sulfate. Um, it's that saturation of, of salts that seems to really kind of get people towards the character that, uh, that I think they're, they're looking for. Um, that said, I've made some really great IPAs with no salt additions whatsoever as well. Um, I will say that when you're using less hops, um, using 
heavier salt additions. And don't do too much because you can actually push to where you're starting to strain your body physically. Um, so you don't make sure to pay attention to like recommended levels for your physical health. Um, but, uh, salt, right? <laughs> but, but yeah, you know, it's like, if you look back at those old, like Burton IPA, um, water profiles from England, uh, and you know, the IPAs that made IPAs in the first place, um, something that I think got overlooked really early on was just that across the board, their water was hard and they had just a lot of all of the ions present. Yep. Um, and people kind of honed in on ratios, but I think that overall concentration and total hardness, uh, comes into play, especially with hazy IPAs. There's definitely not a single other, maybe stouts, stouts. We also tend to have some pretty heavy salt additions, but, um, that's something that's that's had a pretty big impact on, on our IPAs. Oh, also, I like to acidify the boil, but that's not really a secret anymore. The way it was like five years ago, I think almost everyone's doing that. So, um, but you know, just if you wanted confirmation, yeah, I like like four point nine pH start a boil. That's I think a good good way to reduce isomerization, pick up more character, and also pH really does have a big impact on perceived flavor. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, well. And one of the things uh, you just kind of going into your the other part, the, let's go to the other side of your portfolio. Uh, one of my favorite beers is your Czech Pilsner that you're making, and that is completely different than your hazy IPAs, but it is yeah. a great beer. And so, uh, I you know, I don't we, we don't need to go super long on this one, but the idea is uh, uh, it's it's very very different. And and maybe what's your approach on that beer? Yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned that one because I'm actually drinking that one right right now. Um, <laughs> I had I, one I last love, night; it was delicious. <laughs> yeah, I love this beer. Like, I I mean, I love every beer we make in a different way. But in terms of what do I actually really drink, uh, this beer it's so good, and uh, I bring it home by the case. Um, so, what makes this beer is again, it's that, it kind of gets back to that same point, which is process um really focusing on all of the little elements and so a um, couple of the big ones for this one pretty straightforward very soft water profile um you know we use uh fireman pilsner just regular uh pilsner malt um not barca or bohemian but that's actually something i do want to play with more um and you know, just that malt uh, we triple the cockpit, um, which is, you know, something that, especially at the commercial scale, you don't see all that often just because it's kind of hard if you don't build your system around that to do it. And it can be extremely time consuming and challenging. Uh, fortunately we have a just absolutely phenomenal brew house that can do anything. And so we triple the cockpit this beer, um, which decoction is fortunately super easy at a homebrew scale. Um, so triple decocked it, uh, it's all Hallertown middle through, um, for hops and we don't do any dry hopping. I can't remember for the life of me what our dosage rate is, but it comes out to about like 35 ish calculated IBU. Um, we, uh, we've actually played with a few different yeasts on this one. And it's funny because, uh, my philosophy on lager yeast, I was like trying to find the right one. For the longest time and then i was hanging out with bill from Beerstat, and uh he just told me you know 
if you're doing the if you're doing things correctly with lager, the yeast should be contributing almost nothing except for alcohol. So it really shouldn't matter. Like, yeah, I have a preferred house strain, but it really shouldn't matter what you're brewing your lagers with. If your technique and your lagering methods are good, the yeast's character should be irrelevant. Um, you know, maybe the only real big difference is, is sulfur production. Um, but you know, you get a good healthy fermentation. Uh, you should see most of that clear up, especially if you lager for a sufficient period of time. You know, length of time lagering super important. Um, we also emulate one of the methods that they do, which is a float tank, um, which is a very old school traditional German method where you rack the beer into a um, flat bottomed vessel, you pitch the yeast, you oxygenate, uh, and then you let the oxygen um, start to rise out of the solution and it floats. Uh, this cold break up to the top and then you rack out of that vessel to try to you let the yeast that wasn't viable enough to get into the solution in the first six to eight hours uh, fall out to the bottom and you leave that behind and then you let a lot of this you know polyphenol and um, you know tannic shrub from the boil um, get kind of stuck in this foam at the top of the solution and you leave that behind as well and I will say like in terms of methods, that is one that has a really noticeable impact. I mean, the just cleanliness and the definition of the beer that you get um, after doing that process is incredible. Um, some of the other methods a little harder to do at a homebrew level, but you know, just getting getting rid of your trub um, and dead yeast uh, during the early parts of fermentation uh, to try to make sure that you're just keeping the solution pretty clean, pretty neutral of anything that might cause off flavors. Um, and then just giving it enough time to lager. Crashing slowly, you know, not just dropping from 49 degrees to 32 in 12 hours, you know, doing two degrees Fahrenheit per day or one degree Celsius per day. Um, it's a nice rate. Uh, we don't, we just, we just let them ride flat at 49 degrees until they pass diacetyl. Um, they'll eventually pass unless your fermentation's super fucked up. Um, so, you know, we don't, we don't do a diacetyl rest, uh, in the traditional sense, just ferment cold the whole time, crash slowly, uh, stay low for a long time. And, uh, the only method that we don't really get to employ a new image simply because we just don't brew the volume of lager required for this. Although it's something that I, I would... Uh, having a flagship, like a real flagship lager that we make in, in more sufficient quantity is something that's a goal of ours uh, in, the, in the coming years. Uh, but croisoning uh, is, is super, just a really amazing technique for cleaning up lagers. Just throwing just a little bit of fresh yeast in there to clean up for the lazy, dying yeast that have, you know, really just, they're done. They don't want to do anymore. They don't want to clean up their mess. They just wanted to make it. Um, so croisoning is a really, really great method for lagers and cleaning them up on the cold side. But um, yeah, I mean, that beer is super, super simple. One malt, one hop, all method. Um, yeah. and, and it is a striking beer. Like when you order one, it, I, it, it is 
crystal clear it's it's a it's a beautiful lager and uh and i just feel like and maybe it's because uh i'm a i'm a geeky home brewer but i i always try to i i I like to judge breweries on their lager right and and yours is killer so it's a it it, like you said one one hop one malt all method uh lagers scream nothing but method in the end right so it's that there's nothing to hide behind in that beer and it's it's a great beer yeah and you know i think making a a passable lager is not that hard um but making you know use the word striking a a lager that really is great i don't want to like declare our own lager is great because it's not my place to do so if other people think that that's awesome but um you know that's the goal anyway is to make a great lager and the difference between making a passable lager and a great lager it truly is a lot of attention to really, really small details. But at the same time, I would say the same about making a great IPA versus a passable IPA and a great stout versus a passable stout. It's really finding the tiniest details that make a huge difference. Um, but most of those details are just pay attention to details and, you know, I personally would say, like, I know it's heresy to say, don't drink on your brew day, but don't drink on your brew day until <laughs> you're done brewing. <laughs> like, hey, you're just... a, that's a, I, I tell people that too. So, uh, I, I'm a, I'm a one beer on a brew day guy. That's, that's my rule. And, and, and I drink it when I'm cleaning. That's, yeah. that's my method. And I think too, like, you know, maybe you get a, maybe you get a nice, like, two and a half percent alcohol pilsner or a, you know a sessionable table saison or something that you really keep your your wits about you because i mean yeah i love having a beer too but you know your your standards just drop <laughs> and oh, totally. uh, your, your attention to detail uh, it drops off and you know but you know, at the same time too like it's about having fun so if that's if, if you're there more to hang out with your friends then have your beers but if you're asking yourself what's the difference it's that <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, Brandon, I, I have to thank you for giving me the time today. I, I know you're a busy guy. And so thank you so much for coming on Homebrewing DIY. And it, it, it was a, this was a, a, a great conversation. I learned, uh, I learned a few things that I'm definitely going to take after this conversation and start trying on some of my hazy recipes like out the go. So, um, thank you so much for, for being on the show. And if you ever want to come back, please reach out. I'd love to have you back. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Um, I, you know, I love talking about this stuff. I tend to be very verbose and nerdy with beer and, um, not all crowds appreciate that. Uh, I see well, a lot of mine does glazed over <laughs> eyes and, you know, people like Jesus and this guy's going to shut up. Um, so it's, <laughs> it's fun to, to speak to a community that I know values, uh, you know, eats up the verbosity, just more, more information. I want to learn more. And especially in the, in the year that is 2020 continuing to 2021, I know I listen to podcasts endlessly and I see, you know, normally in episodes an hour and one three, it's like, sweet. I don't need to find another podcast to listen to in this episode. ever. <laughs> <laughs> Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brandon, and uh, uh, we'll have you back. Awesome. Yeah, appreciate it.
I'd like to thank Brandon for taking the time to come on this week's show. Like I said in the interview, he had a few different takes on hazy IPAs that I'm definitely gonna apply to making my hazy IPAs. And it was a great conversation. I have uh, feedback for next week, not this week. So uh, if you if you wanted to stick around for that, it was a long interview. So that's it for this week. And we'll talk to you next week on Homebrewing DIY. <laughs>